Thanks for joining us for our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're currently in our series, Fresh Fruit, where we are diving into the fruit of the Spirit. As a believer, the fruit of the Spirit should be coming out of our lives. It should be shown in all that we say and do. Just as when you see an apple tree, you see apples on it. As a Christian, others should see you and see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. They should see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They should see Jesus in us. Our vertical relationship with God must be lived out in our horizontal relationships with others. So let's jump in together to this week's message of Fresh Fruit. We're so glad you're here. Well, good morning, Nolansville. My name is Mike Minter, better known as Kelly's father, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so... Actually, she's speaking up in Nashville, so this is the Battle of the Mentors. Uh, my message will be a little bit better than hers, but not a whole lot. Uh, I didn't know there were three services. I thought there were just two. Wait till Jason gets my bill. Uh, no, he told me. He just said, you want to come and preach? I said, yeah, I didn't even tell me there were three services. I'm going to be worn out. Um, we are looking at goodness today. We've been doing a whole series on uh, the fruit of the Spirit, the nine fruits that make up the singular fruit of the Spirit. Uh, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would please, this morning and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. Um, you may want to, you might be asking the question, um, we did kindness last week, and what's the difference between kindness and goodness? Well, there's, a, there's shades of meaning, but kindness has to do with generosity. It has to do with doing something for somebody, like uh, helping old ladies across the street or old men across the street. Uh, that's kindness. Goodness has to do with moral character, moral action. And so I suspect some of you have come in today thinking, oh, goodness, this is going to be a happy, clappy message. No. No, when old guys preach, we don't do that, all right? Uh, I think this is going to be very refreshing for you, but it's not an easy message to swallow because this word, moral goodness, carries a lot of weight with it. There's a lot of gravity in this particular word. And the more we understand it, uh, the more we'll be able to carry it into the world. And you'll see the incredible difference it makes in, a, in, a, in the world around us when we have moral character energized by the Spirit of God, which is called goodness. We are in Romans chapter 3 to start things off with. I'd like you to look down at verse 9. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in the first three chapters of Romans, uh, takes the world and brings them into a courtroom. And he drops the gavel. And he says, guilty. And then the rest of the book is to how we are freed from that guilt. But that's how it starts out. And this is part of it. Verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that the Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not 
even one. Father, would you open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Kindness involves generosity. Goodness is moral character. And it says here, there is none good, not even one. Matthew 19, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good master, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. So either Jesus isn't good or he's God. So we've got a fair amount to dive into here because you might be thinking, well, if there's none good, why are we studying goodness? Why are we looking at something that we apparently can't do, don't have, let's just fold up our Bibles and go home? No. In the human nature, as a person is born into this world, the nature of all human beings is that of rebellion against God. Not, not a fun thing to talk about, but that's what Romans is about. Uh, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and death is passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We are not by nature good, all right? We are by nature rebels towards God. But once a person calls upon Christ to save them, once the gospel enters a human life and the Holy Spirit enters them, now we have the power and the ability to have the fruit of the Spirit emanate from our lives through the power of the Spirit, not through the power of human effort. I'm not saying that people outside the kingdom can't do good things, even moral things, but it is not empowered by the Spirit. Thus, it doesn't have an eternal value to it. Eternal value is always energized by the Spirit. People do things in life that are good, that are even morally good, but they do not have an eternal value to it. When we do things that are good, energized by the Spirit, it impacts the people around us in the world for eternity. I just want to make that clear right up front. Now, we live in a world that is hostile to our moral character, to, to biblical character. Uh, we are in a battle uh, with the world. We are going against the grain, uphill, upstream. If we don't feel the resistance of the current, that means we're drifting, all right? And so this, this word is a powerful word. It, it, you know, sometimes when we're reading scripture, we're just reading along and, and, and we're, we're having our devotions. And I'm telling you, I, I, if I had the time, I would take you into this book and show you from Genesis to Revelation Every single word, everything is connected. There's an interconnectedness from Genesis to Revelation. There's no lost word. There's no lost thought. Everything flows in the direction of being fulfilled in the person of Christ. It's a, it's, it's a meta-narrative. It's a phenomenal account. But we just have our time today on this one particular word, this goodness, this moral character, as I said it is going against the grain. And the reason that it is, is if you read Colossians in chapter 1, it says that when we're born again, we're taken out of the kingdom of darkness 
and placed into the kingdom of God's dear son. Now, these are hard things. Uh, you, you, you probably thought when you came in today, oh, goodness, this is just going to be a, oh, my goodness. My goodness is what you're thinking. <laughs> this is, but, you know, it's, uh, it is goodness, and it has something to it that will, when we leave here today, I think you'll find that, that, that you have something now that is inherent within you by the power of the Holy Spirit to change lives everywhere around you. Now, before we get too far into this, here's a problem. I've seen it in my own life. It happens to almost every single believer. You enter the kingdom of God. You're born again. Uh, you pass from death unto life. You're taken out of the kingdom of darkness. You're placed into the kingdom of God's dear son. You're justified. You're declared righteous. All these wonderful things. But there's a tendency that when you come to church or have your devotions and then you step back out into that world out there, that world is hostile what is here. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you will see legislation that is passed in our government that is absolutely counter to the teachings of Scripture, counter to the teachings of Christ. And there's no way for us to battle all those things, but God has given us a unique power. Uh, love is a power, and we'll learn later that these, that these fruits of the Spirit are weapons. They are weapons that are used to defeat the enemy that is out there. We don't have to look at the world all the time and be afraid of it and all that. We are placed here for a purpose, and we'll see something a little bit different in a few moments. But here's what happens. Um, if we continue to uh, allow ourselves to drift, we have something that God has given us, and it's called a conscience. Now, this is, this is fascinating because the word conscience, con-science, means to know with. Con-with science means to know with. When a child enters the world, right away, the very, very beginning, they have a conscience. And if they get into the cookie jar and you come in the room, they hang their head, they hide behind the curtain. Why? Because they've done something morally wrong and they know it. The more often that we do something morally wrong and our conscience continues to tell us about it and we don't pay attention to it, the conscience stops speaking. You might be, maybe there's a new series on TV and you go on and you watch it. Oh gosh, there's really a bad scene there. And your conscience says, this is, this is not a good show. I, I, I want you to turn that off. But you don't. And, you know, another week comes by and you think, well, I am sure the bad, you know, and, and you don't. And your conscience says, eh, get out of there. And three weeks and the conscience says, turn that off. Four weeks, turn that off. Five weeks, your conscience stops speaking because it says you're not listening to me and it's called a defiled conscience, a seared conscience, a shipwrecked conscience, a calloused conscience. Those are the four words that are used regarding what happens to our conscience when we don't listen to it. So the conscience has to be reprogrammed all the time because we'll hear something that we think is right and it's not right, but because we think it's right, our conscience will be, will be focused on what we think is true north. If, for example, Jeff Simmons, uh, all of us admire Jeff, great leader, great preacher. Suppose Jeff said, you know, we're going to have a Wednesday night prayer meeting, and if you aren't there, God's going to be mad at you. You know what you're going to think? If Jeff said it, my conscience is now programmed. Jeff listens to God. If I don't come to Wednesday night prayer meeting, 
I am going to feel guilty. And you will. Should you feel guilty for not being at Wednesday night prayer meeting? Nope. Nope. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about that. But because your conscience has been programmed to that, you'll think that. All right? Many religions put rules over people, and they feel guilty all the time when the Bible doesn't speak to that at all. So our conscience, for it to be true north, we have to get into this book. We spend time in it every day. We spend time in prayer, and God will keep our conscience where it needs to be. You know, and you, and you go back to the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. This struck me probably 20 years ago or so. I was teaching through Genesis, and it struck me that it says, and Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. After the fall, after Satan deceives them, they are now naked and ashamed. And God says to Adam, where are you? I'm naked, so I hid myself. Who told you you were naked? And I was just reading along. I went, wait a minute. Who did tell them they were naked? Who told them they were naked? They didn't have a conscience before the fall. There was no need for a conscience before the fall because there was no right and wrong. Everything was right. Everything was pure. After the fall, there is now right and wrong, good and evil. They needed a conscience. I'm convinced that the who that told them they were naked was their conscience. And so your conscience, according to Romans, can either excuse or accuse you, all depending on how it is set forth. Now, let's take a look at an example in Scripture that talks about moral goodness, this word goodness. We're going to go all the way back in the Old Testament. Here's Joseph. His father puts him in charge of his brothers because his brothers are evil. And Joseph is good. He's morally good. They hate him. They throw him into a pit to kill him. He's sold into slavery. He goes into Potiphar's house. Uh, Potiphar recognizes the goodness of this man. Puts him in charge of everything. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. And he says, how can I do this wickedness and sin against God? There's his moral character and goodness. Potiphar's wife screams and says, he's trying to seduce me. Potiphar comes home, has him thrown in jail. That's when you say, hey, God, I'm not sure I understand this. I did exactly what was right, and now I'm in jail, all right? He's in jail because this moral goodness is going to be used again in jail. While he's in jail, he's in charge of the jail because the jailer realizes he has responsibility, moral character, recognizes it, puts him in charge of the prisoners. There's two prisoners, a butler and a baker, probably others, but these two. They have a dream, and they don't know what the dream means, and they're disturbed by it. And Joseph comes in, and he looks at them, and he says... Why are your countenances so sad? Now, if that were me, and I'm in prison, I am not going to ask why your countenances are so sad. You're in prison, and I don't care. I care about me. I'm not interested in whether your countenances are so sad, but Joseph has moral character here and sees a way, not just to be a nice person or a, a, a kind person, but to do something because they're in distress, all right? And so he says, God interprets dreams, so he interprets their dreams. One of them has their head taken off. The other gets out of prison and goes back to Pharaoh, but forgets Joseph for two years. But when Pharaoh has a dream, 
the butler says to Pharaoh, oh, there's a guy back in prison that knows how to interpret dreams. And Pharaoh says, get that man. And so he gets out of prison and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh says, he says, this man has the spirit of God in him and puts him second in charge of all of Egypt. And of course, there's a famine in the land and all of his brothers come down to buy grain. And then after buying grain, they are set up in Egypt in a place called Goshen. That's where the 12 tribes are. That's where Israel starts. That's where the Messiah comes. You think moral goodness is worth it? If Joseph hadn't have said to the, to the butler and the baker, why are you so sad? If he hadn't have said, how can I do this wickedness and sin against God? We would not be here today. That's how seriousness, moral goodness is. That's how God can take something like this, like this moral goodness, and do what he does. It's, it's, it's incredible. So the moral goodness moves forward, and then Joseph, of course, uh, is, becomes the prime minister, and things move on from there. Now, I told you earlier that the fruit of the Spirit, all nine, each one of them is actually a weapon. And I never would have thought of this in a thousand years, so I can't take credit for it. A good friend of mine and I were having lunch many years ago, and we were chatting about this. He's one of the most insightful people that I know. He's a retired Marine, uh, fought in Vietnam, graduated the Naval Academy in 1965. He and I are great friends. Just talked to him a couple of days ago. And I remember we were having lunch, and he said, uh, he said, you know in 2 Corinthians where it says, the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds? I said, yeah. He says, what do you think those weapons are? And I said, well, they're the word of God. It's the sword of the spirit. It's a weapon. Uh, prayer is a weapon. He said, yes, those are two good weapons. You think those are the only weapons we have? I said, well, I can't really think of any. He said, do you know what a weapon is? He, loved, he loves to study military history and biblical uh, spiritual warfare. He loves it. And he says, a weapon, by definition, is anything that we possess that keeps our enemy from destroying us. And he said, the fruit of the Spirit, each one of those are a weapon. I said, how's that? He said, well, love is a weapon against hate. And it, it does something to people that are hateful. Even ourselves, if we, if we have hate and we fill ourselves with love, we now have a weapon that is destroying the hate that is within us. If we're greedy, generosity is a weapon against our greed. And he just went through all of them. I thought, you're kidding me. Very insightful because these things are weapons and goodness is a weapon. You can see it in Joseph's life. It was a weapon against his brothers. It was a weapon against Potiphar's wife. It was a weapon in, in, the, in the jail cell. It was, a it was a weapon. And you go throughout Scripture and you begin to see that there are so many places where people carried forth the complexities of these things that are, that are found here. And rather than just kind of reading the fruit of the Spirit, they're so that, and that clever and that nice. This is why the Scriptures talk about meditating. Because I told the earlier service, rather than read for distance, read for depth. Maybe take just five verses, and when you have your devotions, that's all I'm going to meditate on, those five verses, unless it's one of the genealogies, but uh, even scholars know how to do that. But it's important to see what, 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 this, what, what this does. These are powerful, powerful statements. Now, 
there's something else about goodness and something else about the fruit of the Spirit and areas of Scripture where God makes certain statements about things. When he gives a list of the fruit of the Spirit, there are some times when God uh, teaches explicitly, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's explicit. It's clear. It's right there. I actually prefer when God teaches implicitly, when he implies something. Because if he says something boldly right up front, I get it, I get it, it's right there, black and white. But when he, when he implies something, it forces me to, to look at what he's saying, going, now, now why did you say that? What, what, what are you implying there? So when you look at um, the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus talks about, he says, you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Okay, all right, what does that mean? You better figure out what that implies, all right? Now, in those days, not as much as today, if, you, if he says to them, you're the salt of the earth, in those days, salt was so well known to preserve meat. You packed meat in salt to preserve it because it would decay, all right? Today, we have refrigeration and packing machines. There's not as much today, but we still know that salt was a preservative. Light penetrates darkness. Light, darkness is actually nothing. Light is something. Darkness is simply the absence of light. So he says, he says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. What's he implying? He's implying that the world is decaying. And it's in darkness. That's why implication sometimes is better than what is explicitly stated. We are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. You mean to tell me that me as an individual, that a church, the group of people, the church around the world is a preserving agent in a world that is decaying? Have you not noticed the moral decay in the United States over the last 15, 20 years? It's unsustainable. There will be a place, there will be a time when almost every nation destroys itself from within. By the way, aren't you glad you came this morning? <laughs> but I'm telling you, this is good stuff. It's good stuff. Because we are the ones that are, that are called to help this world to not decay. We are the ones to bring light into a dark space. We invite people into the kingdom where there's light and joy and, and, the, and the fruits of the Spirit that, that are mentioned here. Um, I think of a couple other passages. By the way, and again, the reason that I never, that I just, every time I speak, I, I always tell them, I can't come up with stuff in the middle of the week so they can print this because this service is different than the first service. I guess you know, the guys in the back know I've given different illustrations. That's just how I, how I so I told Jeff when he hired me, I said, I, I, can't, I can't do the fill-in thing. So anyway, that's what, so here, here's, here's what I got. So uh, like different things are coming to my mind as I'm talking right now. Um, 
when I, when I look at, at other portions of Scripture, there's an there's a interesting passage. You, you need to turn here, but, but this is found in, first Peter, uh, in, in James chapter 3. It says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. We find that in James. We find uh, other passages. We find this passage in in 1 Peter, it says this, listen, this is just so good. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You were in darkness. Not physical darkness, but darkness, spiritual darkness. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify your God on the day of that he visits us and he returns, indicating that goodness, moral goodness around people that are even opposed to us can see something that is different and it's penetrating. And you'd be surprised how many people do not hold to our moral values but are amazed at us. They're amazed at us and they don't understand it. And those are the kind of people that, that are gonna say, they're gonna say to themselves, they might even say to you, I don't ever plan on becoming a Christian, but if I do, I want to be like you. That's, that's what your life and my life ought to look like. It ought to be challenging to people. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by the which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness by faith. That's Hebrews 11, 6 or 7. The point is, he condemned the world. Why? He condemned the world through his moral goodness. He didn't have to verbally condemn the world. It was his life. There's a condemnation without us saying a word when people see our moral vitality, our moral goodness. The gospel is best communicated when the conviction of those who believe it can be observed by those who don't. When you and I start to slide and we look like the world, the salt has lost its savor. The light has got a bushel basket over the top of it. It's no longer there. And my, it's not a judgment. It's just what I'm watching through the years. I'm seeing more and more slippage. I, I, I got to watch it in my own life. I got to get back in here all the time and say, okay, I think my conscience has got, no, I think I'm heading west instead of true north. Get back in here, read things and it's that cleansing thing that just makes so much difference. This is, this is the power of the gospel. You know, we, we, we hear the term gospel, and we know it means good news, and we just kind of move on. The gospel is part of our lives every single day. Let me give you an example of why I say that. When a person, I, I came to know Christ in June of 1970 in Copenhagen by watching a man whose moral character 
His kindness, his goodness, his fruit of the Spirit was so evident to me, and I went to church every single week. I was a good person, so to speak. His life so outshined mine, and he knew God in a way I didn't, and after a month of traveling and reading the Gospel of John, I looked at him and I said, take me to your leader. Who is this God that you know that I don't know? And I got on my knees and called upon Christ to save me. Totally changed my life. Turned my life upside down, or maybe I should say right side up. Because here's what happened, and here's what happened to you the moment you believed. The first thing that happened is, as I've already said, you were taken out of the kingdom of darkness, you're placed into the kingdom of God's dear son, the kingdom of light. Here's something else that happened to you. You were, uh, you were justified, which means declared righteous. At the exact moment, there's none righteous, no, not one. None good, no, not one. The moment that you came to Christ, you were justified because you are not by nature righteous. Now you are declared righteous. It's a judicial statement. God drops the gavel and says, Joe, Sally, you are now declared righteous. You're not righteous in yourself. You are declared righteous. I claim you as righteous. You have the righteousness of Christ because you're indwelt by, by Christ. That's how you enter the kingdom of God, by entering with his righteousness, not our own. So many people think, as long as I do good, try my best, be a good person, be a nice person, and be kind, and so on, I'll get to heaven. No. No, 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 no. Because all of our righteousness are as filthy rags, according to the book of Isaiah. They're all tainted. Here's something else that happens to you. You pass from death unto life. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You're now alive. And here's another thing that happens. And here's a term that people throw around a lot. You are now born again. And let me tell you something about that expression, born again. He who is born once will die twice. He who is born twice will die once. Here's what I mean. If you're born once physically and you're not born again spiritually, you will die spiritually and physically. If you're born physically and spiritually, you will only die physically. He who is born once dies twice. He who is born twice dies once. All right? And here's what's important about this term born again or born from above. That term is used by many professing Christians to say, I'm a Christian. I'm just not one of those born again kind. Then, then you're not a Christian. I'm born again. Then you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're born again. But you'd be surprised how many professing Christians think that that's a separate level, that, that I, I, I'm a good person, I'm a Christian, but I'm just not one of those born-again kind. They really, man, they carry things way too far. They read their Bibles every day, go to church all the time. I go to church twice a year. Yeah, come on. I'm a good person. I'm not a Christian. And so when somebody ever says to you, oh, you're one of the born-again kind, all right, that's the only kind. Now, here's something else that happens, and this is really important. When you, when you are born into the family of God, the Holy Spirit enters you and he illuminates your mind to understand biblical revelation. Revelation is what God wants man to know that man could otherwise not know. This book doesn't tell you how to fix a car or throw a football. It tells you things you would otherwise have no knowledge of, where you came from, why you're here, where you're going. So here's what happens. Second, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 2 says, 
eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. But God has revealed them unto us. Yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows anything about another man unless the spirit of that man reveals it to him? You don't know anything about me unless I reveal it to you. Neither can anyone know anything about God unless the spirit of God reveals it to them. Because the unsaved man, the natural man, cannot understand the things of the spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. So God has given us biblical revelation. He's given us the spirit of God to have our minds illuminated to understand the divinely inspired revelation. This is why every day you get in here, you get your conscience reset because we walk out there, it's going to get adrift a little bit, get back in here, it gets back to true north. And when it gets back to true north and our moral goodness and our kindness and our joy and our love and all those things, the fruit of the Spirit, when it is there in its full force, it is a weapon. And it does incredible damage to the enemy who lives in darkness and holds people captive. It is a weapon. So when we leave here today, I want you to see yourself as a weapon, as somebody that possesses the power of the Spirit of God as we move forward and share the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. But I don't I only know a few of you here. I, I just don't know you. But I, d I don't know how many of you have ever really come to the place where you've called upon Christ to save you. And that you might just sort of have an intellectual knowledge. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a nice person, whatever. But have you ever come to grips? I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I'm in the kingdom of darkness. I can't save myself. My human goodness does nothing. I'm coming up to Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. Not how often I go to church or how good I am, but Christ and Christ alone. And when you do, when you call upon him to save you, you are justified, you're born again, you pass from death into life, you leave the kingdom of darkness, you enter the kingdom of God's dear son. And the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these dear people that have come out today. And I pray should there even be one, five, six that are here today that do not know you, that today would be the day that they would call upon you for everlasting life. Father, thank you for the power of goodness. Thank you for the power of the fruit of the Spirit. That when we leave here, we realize that we are powerful weapons, gentle weapons, kind, but still weapons in touching a world that is decaying in darkness and so, Father, we pray that you dismiss us now with your grace and give us a day to honor you, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. That's the end of this episode on the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. Before you go, we invite you to think about who you could share this sermon with. Click the subscribe button so that you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Did you know Rolling Hills publishes other podcasts too? Check out the Making History and Parenting podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We're thankful you spent some time with us today. We'll see you next time.